we're excited today to continue to continue our Grow series. We've been uh, walking through the fruit of the Spirit. We are nearing the end. We have two weeks left. And so we've been walking week by week through these thin slices of what does it mean to live a life uh, fully led by the Spirit and fully in the Spirit. And this week, interestingly, we get to gentleness. Peace and patience and their self-control. But gentleness is one that isn't particularly interesting to most people. Most people get to gentleness and they go, "Uh uh-huh, that's nice. But what are the ones that I actually can use in my life? Especially in our culture, um, there are about 50% of uh, Americans, which would be uh, red-blooded American males, who would be told that gentleness is actually something they don't really need to take hold of. Gentleness is something Mother Teresa does, not something that we do. And yet scripture would speak very differently about what gentleness is. And I think what's important as we set the whole topic up is to know that in your Bible, when you read gentleness— uh, it's often the very same word that is sometimes translated as meekness or sometimes translated as humility. And so when you come across gentleness, when you come across humility, when you come across meekness, they are all these interconnected words that depending on the context, the people who translated your Bible into English at some point had to make a choice. And when I start thinking about what gentleness and meekness and humility are, I think we have a larger plate with which to deal And something that, for me, is far more compelling. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at a vignette in the life of Jesus to see what it looks like to truly live out Christ-like gentleness and what impact it could have on the world. And so we are going to do that. And before we do that, I would like to pray. We're going to be in John uh, chapter 8. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to put it on the screens as well. But let's uh, take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, you give us your word. You gave it to us in Christ, in his time on this earth. You gave it to us in that he lived and he died so that we might be free and we might be whole. And yet you've also left your written word for us. So I pray today as uh, we dive into what it is that you have for us, that uh, distractions would be cleared and our minds would be uh, wholly focused on you and what it is that we might individually not just learn, but Father, what might we ingest so that we might apply it in the world around us? So God, thank you for this time and this place. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 8, verse 1. Scripture says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all of the people gathered around him. He sat down to teach them. But the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman caught in adultery. It's an important phrase, caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it's commanded to us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? See, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, this is one of my favorite pictures in all of scripture. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Notice his posture. Jesus then straightened up again and asked her, woman, where are they? 
Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. I think this is a beautiful picture. What's so interesting to me is these these people come with this agenda. The Pharisees come, it says, to entrap Jesus. And they level these kind of big questions at him, and they challenge him to give an answer. And his his first response is to take a knee and begin to draw something into the dirt. He straightens up, asks them a question, and then what does he do? He doesn't wait to see who's going to respond, how he goes back to the dirt. And not until every stone has been dropped and every sandal walked away does he look up and ask the woman where they've gone. I think this is a beautiful picture, and we're going to see why. But what we have to understand is this is a potentially huge problem for Christ. Oftentimes the Pharisees bring uh, these kind of challenges to him, and we can look at them, and and especially in hindsight, we go, well, that's not that big of a deal. I can see how he's going to get out of this one. This one is, is really sticky. And see, what's happening is the Pharisees are sick of Jesus undermining their authority. Jesus is causing trouble for the religious people of the day. I would argue he's still causing trouble for religious people. And yet what they're seeing is that Jesus, this rabbi, is associating with sinners, with prostitutes, with tax collectors. He's giving them a bad rap, but he's also taking them to account for the life they are leading. And so they plan a trap. What you need to also understand is adultery in this day and age was exceedingly rare to prosecute. Exceedingly rare. The text I I pointed out to you, I said make a special note. It says she was caught in or caught in the act of adultery. This is important in the text because it was uh, required by law that you had more than circumstantial evidence. Which is to say, in a slightly sensitive topic, um, had she been seen coming out of a married man's home? That's not enough. Had she been uh, seen coming out of his bedroom? Not enough. Had she been seen laying in his bed? Not enough. The law literally said it's not enough to bring charges unless she was literally caught in the act. This is why prosecuting adultery in the time of Jesus was exceedingly rare. But they have her. So they have her now and they bring her and they think they have Jesus as well. So here's his dilemma. Here's why this is such a big problem for him. Either he must uphold the law, which they quote that the law of Moses says, he either has to uphold the law and see her stoned, which would undermine all he preaches about grace and mercy and redemption, or Jesus has to demand that she be set free, and in doing so, trample upon the law of God, which says she deserves to be stoned. And they know, and he knows, the true Messiah would never trample upon the law of God. He loves the law of God. So he's stuck. The question a lot of people ask when we get into this text is, yeah, yeah, that's good and all, but what did he write in the, what did he write in the dust? Yeah, I know, I want to know how the story ends, and that's fine, but what did, what did he write? And a lot of uh, talk has gone into this. A lot of uh, commentators have opinions and ideas. And so before we get into Jesus's response, I think it, I think it is important to look at what he does. I think it's important first to say, uh, think of the reaction he had. I've already said this is so exciting to me because Jesus, instead of just giving them, he's Jesus, right? I mean, thunderbolts from heaven, whatever he wants to do. 
And his response is slow and measured and silent. There's such, there's such a gravity to what he does in his response to them. This is hard for us to understand because we live in a task-oriented culture. Our culture would say that there is little room for that type of behavior. You want to be king of the boardroom, you act fast and you act decisively and you stand behind it and you are confident. And Jesus looks his accusers in the face and begins to draw in the dust. We walk through Winter Garden Park, my four-year-old stops to draw in the dust. And here is the Son of God saying, before I answer, let me just... And this is interesting for me because... This is the, the kind of way our society is going. We are going to faster, 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 more efficient, give me more speed. I have the entire world at my fingertips in the internet, right? And it was like down partially the other day. And like my whole world was over. I can't Google the answer to this question. I can't get on Twitter to check what's wrong with the internet because the internet's down and Twitter is the internet. And the whole thing just collapsed. We need stuff newer and faster and more. Ask any of the guys in this room that are professionally dealing with athletics. What's the new thing in, in training? It's quick t- uh, fast-twitch muscle. Fast-twitch muscle fiber. So we've gotten beyond the idea where you just train to be uh, strongest or fastest. There's now an ability to separate out the muscle fiber that is fast-twitch, which is uh, kind of in charge of quick reactions and decision-making, versus the slow-twitch, which are more in charge of long-term endurance. And so you go Google, if the internet's working, um, fast switch muscle fiber, and you will see all these training programs that allow you to be one millisecond faster than the guy on the other side of the field, than the guy on the other side of the court. You're fast switch muscle fiber. We got to get faster. And Jesus, in response to his accuser, says, what must they have thought? I think it's fascinating. Let me read something to you from Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verse 10. The prophet says, I search, I the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. Like a partridge that hatches eggs it did not lay are those who gain riches by unjust means. When their lives are half gone, their riches will desert them and in the end they will prove to be fools. A glorious throne, exalted from the beginning, is the place of our sanctuary. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be what? Written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. The men Jesus is speaking to would have known this text. For us, Jeremiah is, Jeremiah 17, well, that's an obscure thing that I'll get to that if we study that one day. But these men would have known this text. Jesus would have known this text. And so for Jesus to look them square in the eye and go and kneel to the ground. Now, the Bible doesn't say this is what he was doing, right? Clear. But I would say there, I've never heard a better argument than that this is what he was doing. He looks them in the eye And potentially Jesus kneels and begins to just write their names into the dust. And they look at him and they see what he's doing. And it brings up Jeremiah 17 in their head. And they begin to look at each other. And already against him, the rage builds. And yet, what can they do? You see, Jesus is casting accusation back at them. 
Because in writing their names, he's saying, you who get your religious high off unjust means. Remember when Jesus stormed through the temple and turned over tables? He was rampaging not just because the temple was becoming a marketplace, because the temple had to be, on some regards, a marketplace, because sacrifice took place there. And so if you were coming from the other side of town and you needed to buy a dove or a goat or whatever to be sacrificed, that's where you got it. So there was no expectation that there wouldn't be something happening in the temple. Jesus was enraged at the unjustness. He said, my father's house has become a den of robbers, meaning that somebody is stealing from someone. Archaeologists have found scales there that are improperly weighted from the time of Christ. And they can trace them back and say, these are from the time of Christ. And scale after scale after scale that would have been in the temple marketplace are unjustly weighted. So that when you put your offering in, it, was, uh, it said it was heavier than it was, or it said it was lighter than it was supposed to be, or one way or another, they're cheating you. Oh yeah, you need how much? Yeah, let me put it on there, and it already has a weight on it. And so he's selling you 75% of what he says and taking the full price. So Jesus goes and turns tables over as much to fight the injustice of people cheating the hopeful as anything. And these are the people who were propagating this, the, the holy men who are selling it's these Pharisees that are using a religious structure to unjustly gain wealth. And so we don't know what he wrote, but it's interesting to me. It's interesting that Jesus takes the time to draw back into Scripture and to quietly lay something out in front of these men. What does he do with his dilemma? How exactly does he avoid trampling on the law or the woman? First... We think of uh, gentleness, we think of meekness, we think of humility, oftentimes as weakness. Leaders are type A, decisive, eat red meat, take charge kind of guys. Gentleness, that's what you do with a child, that's what you do with a baby. That's, and yet Jesus here, his response is the ultimate sign of meekness. He was not the first. To be meek is not to be weak, especially in God's eyes. Numbers 12.3 says Moses was a very humble man, a meek man, a gentle man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Moses was the most humble, most gentle, most meek man on the face of the earth. So the man to lead God's people out of slavery was the meekest, most gentle man on the planet. The man who would walk up to Pharaoh and demand that he let my people go. The same slave labor force, which was the economic backbone of their entire kingdom. He says, let them go in exchange for nothing. This is the most gentle man on earth. Biblical gentleness is what Tim Keller calls paired polarity. Paired polarity. When something on this pole and this pole are paired together, then you have the true idea of what this gentleness is. Gentle strength. Humble courage. We think of humility as lowliness, thinking less of self. C.S. Lewis's famous quote, quote is, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And what we see then if we start looking at what does this mean and what does the life of Christ show us is we start seeing that, that this gentleness, this humility, this meekness is a focus on others and a recognition of our own position as created things sent to glorify God and serve others. And that does not require us to be uh, like a feather in the wind. 
but to live a life with a posture that would recognize my position as a created thing. I am not in control. And to recognize that I was sent to glorify God in the service of others does something to me. Changes the way I see the world. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. Humility isn't easy for us. Gentleness isn't easy for us. We are beings bent on pride. We asked it last week. I'll ask it again this week. This is another week where we can say, how do you respond to criticism? It's one of the purest diagnostics we have with so many of the fruits of the Spirit to say, how do you respond to criticism? For some of us, it's devastating. Our ego is fragile and pride is great. And so any criticism is a fatal blow to our conception of ourselves. Some of us think we've beaten that already. That's, that used to happen when I was younger, but I don't worry about criticism anymore. I just brush it off. It doesn't hurt me. When we get in that spot, it's because our ego is so puffed up that we don't recognize truth when it's given to us. Humility is neither devastated nor dismissive of criticism. True humility, true meekness finds gratitude and truth and rest in an identity greater than a worldly perception. I had one of those moments this week where in the busyness of a day, I, I sent an email I shouldn't have. Nothing terrible, nothing scandalous, but I, it was pointed out to me. Hey, I don't, I don't know if this is kind of what you meant. And I went back and read what I wrote. And this was exactly how I felt. The perception I had been carving of myself just crumbled. And I thought, gosh, that's not who I want to be, and that's not how I want to say that. And that, that has no part here. And it's as if just a simple response saying, is this really what you meant? It was just a, it wasn't a chisel, it was a chainsaw to my pride. And it took me about 15 minutes to go, oh, I'm going to preach about this and I'm supposed to be thankful for that. I'm supposed to be thankful. That hurts. But it's my fault. And so I had to kind of center myself and go, God, what does it mean to be meek? And to accept that, yeah, that, the criticism, however sweetly delivered back to me, was absolutely accurate. And probably there's more behind that that I haven't admitted to. And we got to get there. To a place where we're willing to take criticism and say, oh. They probably wouldn't have said it if there wasn't some truth there. Even if it's ill-motived, even if it's a bad agenda, even if they're not a Christ follower and you think, ah, oh, they don't know what they're talking What's the truth at the bottom of that? And when we find ourselves getting there, we sleep better at night because now we're encompassing, we're, we're living out and embodying the full gentleness of Christ. But pride is sneaky. Pride is the greatest sin for the believer. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers of all time, said one of the marks of spiritual pride is that you have total confidence in what you believe. And we live in a polarized world. You are left or right. You are red or blue. It is black. It is white. And Jonathan Edwards says, when you're 100% sure of what you believe, we call that pride. When we're willing to sit down and say, you know what, I, I don't know. Then we're on to something. I was sharing a back and forth email with somebody over a theological issue. Do we believe this? What does the text say about this? I mean, this word kind of gives me trouble. How, how are we going to deal with that? What, what do we mean? And I won't go into details on what the issue is, but those are sticky things. Because what uh, we want to do in our pride is go, this is clear, this is truth, stand here or get out. 
And what's absolutely true is I can say, I know what the Bible says, and I got to deal with what the Bible says, but there's a lot that it doesn't say, and I don't know. My job is to say, I don't know what the answer to that is. But we can get there together, and we can journey on that together, and by the end of this long life, maybe we'll look back and go, you know what, maybe it was that and not this. But I don't know is the mark of someone who's truly humble. Hey, Dad, what should we do about this? Gosh, I don't know. Hey, Mom, what do you think about that? Hey, honey, hey, coach, hey. I don't know. What do you think? And that would be the diagnostic that trips in you, and it'll create pride on the other side, so sorry about that. But you'll be like, that was gentle of me. That was meek. I was able to admit first that maybe I don't know everything. Gentleness and humility are then living in a delicate balance with the strength and confidence you have in your identity in Christ. The same thing that says, I don't know, is the same thing that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so as you start to bring those things together, it's the paired polarity that Tim Keller talks about, is you bring this great strength and confidence that I am who I am because Christ says it. That I am freed, that I live eternally in the risen Son of God. That I have victory that no one can steal. I have security that no one can take. I am safe. I am blessed. I am a child of God. And pair that with, and sometimes I don't have the answer. And then we get to a point where we go, that's biblical gentleness. And that's why it's so difficult to grasp it. Because we are the kind of people that live on one edge or the other. We kind of go back and forth and the pendulum swings and we become a doormat for a while. We go, no, no, you're not a doormat. You're a, you have victory in Christ and then we're over here and we're arrogant. No, 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 don't be arrogant. Come back to the center. And Christ intends for us to land right in the center. Revelation 5 talks about a lion and a lamb. The lion of Judah, the lamb of God. Jesus was the most fierce possible being. The most brave to take the cross on and the torture that would come with it. That is bravery like we have never seen. And at the same time was a lamb that Isaiah says was like a lamb led to slaughter, did not even open his mouth. That's what we're aiming for. And the Lord knows we may not get to that perfect spot of lion and lamb until he calls us home. And yet, that's our goal. How can we be fully ferocious? The lion, the king that everyone fears at the same time being the lamb that is willing to lay down his life on behalf of his friends. So we come back to the text. Jesus finishes drawing in the dirt. He says, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left. The woman was standing there. Jesus straightened up. He asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is incredible. Jesus says, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. And Jesus is bound to justice. He can't act unjustly. Because if he is fully God, injustice is not in him and cannot come from him. And so he is in this tight spot where he has to find full justice and still embody the grace and the mercy he's preaching without violating the law. And so he's not invoking mercy when he says he is without sin, cast the first stone. He's He's subtly citing the law. Because think about it this way. If they'd brought him a serial killer, 
and he had just let them go, is that justice? Not justice. And what he's saying is, if you have a sin, are you able to throw the stone? He's asking basically three questions. He's forcing them to think through three laws that were common in the day. The first one is the law of the witness. In the Old Testament law that Jesus was living in, it had been brought forward, you had to have the witness as the executioner. The witness couldn't say, I saw it, and then someone else throws the stone. The witness is the executioner. And the other thing about the witness is the witness can't be guilty of the same crime. Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 7, you'll find it. But if the witness is guilty of the same crime, they can't be the executioner because they also have guilt. And so what he's basically saying is, look, some of you are guilty of the same thing you're accusing her of. And what are you going to do with that? And they would know, uh uh-oh, it's the law of the witness. Who leaves first? The older ones. Those who've had a couple more years at this. Those who've had a few more years to stumble into trouble. Those who've had a few more years to find themselves on the wrong end of a bad decision. The Bible says the older ones leave first. He's also invoking the law of evidence. You have to see it. That's the law. Or you're a false witness. And a false witness is in trouble too. To see it means you saw a woman and a man. And so without saying it, Jesus is in essence asking the question, where is he? You have her, but where is he? And this invokes the law of partiality. If a judge is partial, if he plays favorites, if there is a double standard and it can be proven, he is to be killed under the law. And so for these men to come judging and to bring one half of the pair that they claim they've caught in adultery is to be a double standard and to be showing partiality to the man to leave him and to bring her to trial. So either they're guilty of partiality, in which case they should be stoned, or they're guilty of false witness, in which case they should be stoned, or they're guilty of not having evidence, in which case they've brought false witness and we come back around, they should be stoned. They're guilty any way you slice it. And so they have guilt here, which is going to create trouble for them throwing the first stone because the law of the witness says you can't be guilty of a crime of the same magnitude lest you should be stoned too and you can't, dead men don't throw stones. And Jesus lays this out before them and he kind of just And while he's still bent down, the stones drop and the sandals shuffle away. And you can imagine the scene in that moment is the murmuring and the cursing of him as they walk away. The beautiful part for us is Jesus honors the law absolutely. Jesus doesn't violate the law. Jesus allows the law to work to its fullest. And then Jesus deals with her directly. He says, neither do I condemn you. And if we're going to find ourselves in this story, we can find ourselves as the judge. Pointing fingers and trying to feel superior by seeing that someone else isn't quite as good, doesn't quite live up to, isn't quite as righteous. And if we see ourselves as the judge in the story, then we find ourselves walking away. Having been shown that we're no better. Or we can see ourselves as the woman 
ashamed of where we've been, ashamed of what we've done, and we're sitting here. Jesus looks us eye to eye. And what we expect is then for Jesus to do what Jesus should do, which as the sinless one, he's the only one there with the right to throw the stone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. To which we ask, so he just wiped the slate clean? It's just done? It's over? He never said she was innocent, did he? He simply removes the condemnation from her. I don't condemn you, he is saying, because I will be condemned on your behalf. No stone will be cast upon you because the greatest of stones, the weight of the wrath of the world, will be laid upon me. We've said Gethsemane, the place where he goes to pray before he's arrested and crucified. Gethsemane is the weight, the giant stone. That's what it means. It's the stone weight that would press down on the olives to bring out the precious olive oil. Jesus is saying, I will take the stone and I will be pressed under the weight of the sin of all mankind. And because I'm willing to be pressed, you are free. If you're a Christian, you're guilty and still not condemned because we have freedom in what he's done for us. The guilt is then washed away. You are a sinner and still totally accepted. You've fallen short and yet you still meet the mark. If this is your reality, if this is a reality that we can actually ingest and recognize, then it will change us at our core. We will become gentler, meeker, more humble. As we look at the world around us, instead of picking up stones, we take stock of our lives. Instead of getting into an argument, we, we sit on the word of God. We'll become like Christ, who in a moment of incredible tension, rested on the word of God, rested upon the truth of the law, and still found a place for great grace through self-sacrifice. It's upon us to soak in this truth. To look around in our lives and find places where we've fallen short. And to not beat ourselves up over that. But to hear Christ say to us, I don't condemn you. To stand tall. To find that paired polarity that goes, I am a son or daughter of Christ. I am a child of God. He's, he's welcomed me into the kingdom. I'm a co-heir of the kingdom of God. And yet I know who I was and I will never forget it. And that way I might be the lion and the lamb, the gentle and the strong. And as I live that out, like the Pharisees, those who are against the things of God will look and will have no choice but to be disarmed when they follow up on truth and what it really means. So many of us struggle with how do I reach my neighbor? How do I talk to my unsafe coworker? How do I deal with this person who's radically against me in all these ways? Jesus shows us in the face of accusation, in the face, Jesus says, I rest on the word of God. I humble myself and I sacrifice. And it is the most disarming thing we could do. So look around your life. Who do you know that doesn't get that? 
that doesn't know the fullness of Christ, that doesn't know the richness of, of living a life with God? Who do you know that needs that? Who needs someone to be humble with them, who needs someone to be gentle with them, who needs someone to be patient with them? Who do you know? Everybody can think of someone. It's a neighbor, it's a student, it's a coworker, it's a family member. There's somebody in my life that I have to learn how to practice this so as to be a witness to them, so as to be Christ to them. The challenge is then come to Jesus, and as we come to the word of God, we will know him better. And then for us to go and make him known. So I'm going to welcome um, the band back up and ask them, and we're going to uh, share a time of communion. Remembering that we had a Savior who was not only fierce enough to take the cross, brave enough to take the sacrifice, but humble enough to see that his life could be given for ours. And so when we take the bread today, we can remember the Savior who loved us so much that while we were yet enemies, he gave his life that we might be free. That his blood spilled, the bread dips in the cup, his blood spilled is the very thing that makes us clean, that steals away our guilt and allows us to be identified as he is. Couldn't be more excited about uh, this text what it's taught me and the way it's forced me to go back and reconsider even a, just a general worldview. A special bonuses for the BSF ladies in the room. We did First John last week. We're in John this week, so feel free to cheat. Act like it was your idea because it wasn't mine. For all of us, this is an every week invitation into the character of Christ. So we have one more week left to look at what does it mean to grow? What does it mean to be in the fruit of the Spirit? And the ongoing challenge every single week is, how do I get into the character of Christ so that I might not simply embrace it, but actually embody it? That the world out there, awash in darkness, would be shown through you a great light.